From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host today, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of us, Kate Massey and Adi Weiner, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 132. We're happy to talk to you about the world of COVID, which we've been talking about for the last two and a half years, because we're doing our Zoom edition, if you'd like, although last week we were rarely, but we were in the studio. Um, and we, of course, are going to talk about the world of sports and world of statistics. Um, in our Q4 segment, which has always been our interview segment, we have Neil Greenberg from the Washington Post, who'll be talking to us about all kinds of sports. Matter of fact, the potpourri of sports, which will be fantastic to get Neil's perspective. So, Shane, how are you doing today? Good, good. How are things going with you? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting time in sports because this really is a rich time in sports. We've obviously got tennis, which we're going to talk about. We've got golf. We just had a major, which we're going to be talking about. We have NHL playoffs. We've got NBA playoffs. We've got the baseball season in swing. We even have NFL training, OTAs starting. And so there's stuff going on in all of the major sports right now, which is really exciting. But one of the things, you know, Shane, that we've been doing for the last eight years on the show is kind of what's caught our eye segment. For the first six years, it was just what caught our eye generally in sports. For the last two plus years, it's been usually what caught our eye in COVID. But let's not restrict ourselves here. Um, Why don't I start with you, since it's just you and me today. Um, What's caught your eye in the world of COVID or sports in the last week? Well, I mean, you know, I guess the one thing that kind of caught my eye in the, in the world of COVID is the New York Times had a really interesting article, uh, I think that just came out yesterday, on basically looking at uh, deaths above normal, essentially comparing across countries where death rates rose the most during the pandemic. And, you know, what, one thing that they was interesting about that particular analysis is that they, uh, they kind of differentiated between high, you know, essentially high income versus middle income versus low income countries, and just kind of overall looked at kind of, you know, the, the, the death rate above normal. And just to be clear, and, you're t- when you say, I mean, just to be clear, I think it's pretty clear, but when you yeah. say the rate, like, for example, if the death rate per 100,000 people was X pre-COVID, and the death rate was 1.1 X post-COVID, that would be a 10% increase in the death rate. So it's normally yeah. for the fact so it, that these countries did not have the same pre-COVID death rate. That's right. It's a, perc- percent- it's, a percentage in- it's a percentage increase, or in a very few cases, percentage decrease in that country's death rate over the last two years. But also you're talking about, I'd love to hear your thoughts also, which is you're talking about the key moderator being income of the country itself. It's not fair to compare, let's say, the U.S., which is a wealthy country, potentially to a very poor country where you might expect there to be a higher increase. And it's kind of an apples to oranges. Yeah, no. And I mean, kind of, you know, the sort of first order kind of effect, as you've already kind of hinted at, is that the high income countries do have, I mean, have lower death rates in general, but also have had over the last two years, lower death, death rate increases. Um, the United States actually is the fifth highest uh, among the high income countries. And I will say that all this New York Times article focused on countries over 10 million people. So it's only on the subset of countries that are, quote unquote, large by that particular. Let threshold. me ask you a question. You made it seem and I, I would have thought the same thing until I thought about it, maybe a little one step farther, that it's tautological that wealthy countries would have a lower increase in death rate. 
But let me give you a different argument, and you tell me why maybe statistically this doesn't make sense. Let's take a low-income country that already has a high death rate. Maybe there's a ceiling on the death rate. Like maybe the death rate can only go so high. So maybe there's more room for growth in death in high-income countries there are in low. Let's imagine a case where, so let's imagine under the null hypothesis, since we're statisticians, let's imagine vaccines were never found. So let's imagine vaccines were never found. And let's imagine that there weren't uh, remedies that one could take. There's no Paxlovid then you could come up with an argument that countries with a lower baseline could have a higher growth in death rate than countries that start out with a high rate. Or is that logic kind of, is that not? No, I mean, I I think, I, I, no, I think that it certainly could happen. And I mean, I will sort of say, you know, there's, there's overlaps in these distributions, the extent that, you know, I mean, you you know, I don't think it's a guarantee that, or, or like, I didn't want to present it like it's almost by construction or by design that the high income countries would have lower death rates. I just, I, I think because we do have modern medicine and because wealth correlates with the kind of quality of modern medicine and just kind of globally, um, I think that's probably why we're seeing, you know, in general kind of among among the t- the high income countries lower death rates but i certainly i mean you know for example you know the new york times points out the united states is actually fifth highest among the high income countries at a 15% increase in deaths um whereas but of course uh, you 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 should go back to your story that you've been telling for the last two and a half years heterogeneity yeah. which is there are parts of the us where it's been much lower and there are parts of the us where it's much higher it's a if you like a weighted average to that mm-hmm. number that's exactly right. Yeah. And uh, and so that's kind of interesting to, to just sort of see that, you know, I mean, to kind of see it broken down and you can kind of, you know, there's there has been, you know, like, again, countries that have lower income or middle income tend to have, you know, at least among the uh, countries that were uh, countries among 10 million people do have higher higher de- death rates. The one kind of extra level that I found particularly interesting, though, is they then go and actually compare the actual reported COVID deaths versus the actual total deaths above normal, right? Well, how do they compute? Maybe you could tell listeners, how do they, maybe it's obvious, how do they compute the total deaths above normal? Do they just take some sort of historical, like, window weighted average or you know some sort of weight some sort or even not even weighted just take some average number of deaths and just compare observed average over the last couple years compared to what it was before okay yeah so it's just purely a residual from an average yeah and uh and you know you kind of you know it what's interesting is that among the high income countries the reported covid deaths is a pretty close match to the actual total deaths oh i love this keep going yeah. Whereas among the middle and low income countries, you get much more of a divergence. So mo- almost all of the kind of top middle uh, and low income countries in terms of de- overall death rate also have a big, you know, they have deaths above normal substantially larger than the actual reported COVID death rate or the, the, the death rate due to COVID. And so, you know, that kind of rate I, and the United States doesn't really en- engage kind of why. But it, there's, you know, you could imagine a couple different mechanisms why that might be the case. One is that, you know, middle or low income countries just don't have as good of a reporting of the actual COVID deaths. Um, or it could be that, you know, COVID, you know, in middle and low income countries, you know, the effects of COVID weren't just the direct COVID deaths, but that, you know, 
the, the you know it, it overtaxed those those kind of healthcare systems to an even greater extent, such that other other t- kind of deaths also increased during that time in a way that we didn't see in 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 you know the United States or most of the high income countries. You could also imagine there could also be a third theory, which is strategic reporting, which is yeah. which could be done as well. Yeah, uh, accidental. Yeah, I kind of folded in yeah. incorrect COVID death reporting. You know, either intentional or or, or not. So let me ask you, since what caught my eye, which has caught my eye the last like eight weeks to 12 weeks has been, and maybe it's just piggybacking off what you said, and I'd be interested to hear your prediction of what's going to happen over the next three to four months, which is, I don't think there's any dispute, even though it's measured horribly. Matter of fact, one of the things you said is that an implication of what you said is deaths are one of those things we've always talked about that are, if there's anything you're going to measure well, it's probably that better than others. Although we've talked about death with COVID versus death due to COVID. But given that cases are up, and I, I don't think you or I are going to dispute that cases are way up, hospitalizations are up, but not up that much, but still up, up from where they were, not up from where the historic, not from where the peak was. Yeah. But deaths really are not. Do you expect that? I looked at the CDC website today. I knew we were taping the show. It's about 284 a day, which is actually slightly down over the last few weeks. Do you expect that trend to continue, which is cases up, hospitalizations up, but less so, and deaths flat or down? Or do you think we're heading to another potential? Because you know, if this were a year ago, we wouldn't be having this discussion. Cases up, hospitalizations up, deaths are going up, and it's a lagged indicator, leading indicator, and we're going to see it in a couple of weeks, if not four to six weeks. What do you think so now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really only kind of, I, 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 my, my guess, and I will kind of preface this as a guess, is that we're not going to see much of an increase in deaths. I, I mean, there is a lag, and I think that lag, you know, uh, we should respect that lag. And, you know, I don't want to kind of prematurely say because we haven't seen that increase in deaths so far that we're not going to see it. But I do think, you know, as we continue to get better at treating COVID, as these, the newer variants, you know, kind of, are, are, are more infectious, but seemingly, you know, especially for vaccinated people, less severe in their terms of their outcomes. I think that's just going to further decouple the kind of, you know, you know, trends that we're seeing in cases versus deaths. And I also think, you know, the trends in cases is driven by so many things beyond COVID actual prevalence, right? You know, it's, it's, it's a, a function of how much testing you're doing, et cetera. Um, so I, I just I, I, I don't know. Uh, so I, I don't think we're next going to see uh, that much of an increase in deaths. It's also the case that, you know, I think the increases that we're seeing in COVID cases are not the kind of spikes that That's we've true. seen in the past. Right. I mean, you know, during the first kind of Omicron wave, you know, we did you know, there was a greater lag than we had during Delta and Alpha, but we eventually did see a kind of increase in the death rate go along with that. Uh, but and but it was such a huge spike, in, you know, in, in, in cases, we're not seeing that kind of huge spikes. we're seeing increases. And I'm not I don't want to dismiss or or belittle an increase, but it's not kind of, you know, it, it's at kind of the slow wave level as opposed to the spike level. And so that might be another reason why we're going to see, you know, won't see necessarily much of an increase in deaths. I think also what's happening is uh, besides people's behaviors have changed like not less masking, less social distancing, et cetera. I think the people that had COVID before are becoming vulnerable again, meaning it's not lifetime immunity when yeah. you have had COVID. 
and certainly not from previous variants to the new variants of which there's even less long length of immunity. But, you know, this has now been around for, you know, two and a half years almost. And so it's not surprising that someone that had COVID in 2020 or even early 2021, they can get it again. Yeah, no, and I mean, that might also explain why we're seeing kind of these slower waves as opposed to these big spikes is that we're all kind of staggered out in our kind of vulnerability now. At first, obviously, during the alpha wave, we were all kind of, I mean, we weren't equally vulnerable physiologically, but we were all kind of, we all had the same lack of protection. Right. And now our, our kind of each individual's protection is kind of expiring at different time points. And so, you know, kind of that, that introduces a lot of kind of temporal heterogeneity in, you know, basically our vulnerability be, and therefore our cases. One of the things we never talked about on the show, next time we have one of our uh, immunologists or viral infectious people on, I wonder how much heterogeneity there is in how long protection due to the due to having the disease is like, are there, is mm-hmm. it like I'm making yeah. it up? We've heard the number six months, eight months. Is it six or eight months plus or minus a week? Or is it six or eight months plus or minus three months? Like how much is that? Is there a very long tail? Is there a very short tail? We've never even talked about that, you know, in some sense, the heterogeneity in protection due to having yeah. COVID. And I'm going to do my weekly call out. Wouldn't it be wonderful for that type of question if we had a national longitudinal study on a random sample of individuals in our population that were actually tracked for these kinds of, to, with this kind of, to collect this kind of data? That would be a nice thing. Let me say something else that caught my eye. And, and you know, one of the people I follow now on Twitter, yeah, I'm sure if you had asked, uh, you know, virologists, you know, three years ago, if they would have had large Twitter followings, they would have said, just like you and me, Shay, when we were doctoral students, <laughs> statisticians like us data scientists, we're going to have large followings, really? Like people are going to really be interested in data science and analytics. Um, Eric Topol, um, he had an interesting article that recently came out where he talked about intranasal vaccines versus injections. So his comment was, there's a large study that came out about this. Why are we sticking a needle in our arm? Like there are, if you think about how the disease uh, uh, transmits, it's through the nasal cavity most of the time. So why why aren't we using the vaccines that have been developed that are nasal vaccines. And he shows a study where the amount of protection is greater in the nasal cavity by using a nasal vaccine as opposed to a blood-oriented vaccine. Really? I mean, I get... I I mean, I get... That's something I... I, You know, TIL, I didn't realize that even kind of our... That the vaccine protection that we experience is somehow even localized within our body in in such a way. I, I... well, I, I assume, just mean, you know, because well, antibodies no. are in our blood, so therefore... No, no, they, I they know kind of, that, you know, but wouldn't you rather have, like, you know, I'm just, I, this is what the article says, wouldn't you rather have the protection where the virus is trying to come in as opposed to, let's say, like, you have globally good protection versus globally good and locally excellent protection? Yeah, no, and I just didn't even realize that there was a heterogeneity in terms of, like, the body, you know, d- different parts of the body for these different uh, different intake mechanisms. I mean, I certainly, I mean, I don't, I think most people that are still kind of refusing or skeptical to take the vaccine probably, you know, I don't know how, what percentage of them, you know, are, it, it's really just the needle aspect, but to the extent that there's any percentage of them where it's a needle aspect, that would be another motivation to having some kind of like, at least seemingly less invasive way of getting the vaccine into people. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that kind of caught my eye in COVID, and then we'll move to the world of sports was, you know, again, not surprisingly, but 
it's for both health reasons, but also I'm sure financial reasons. You know, Pfizer and Moderna keep coming out now with studies that saying people under the age of 18 should get vaccinated. And they've got data and studies that have come out showing that, interestingly, the effectiveness of the vaccine does decline as you get younger. But it's still in the it's for 12 year olds and above, it appears to be comparable, if not slightly better on a percentage basis than it is for people, you know, whether it's your age, 40s, my age, 50s. Um, And so my question is, do you think there will be a time where people under the age of 18 get, assuming we end up in an endemic period, where we all end up just getting COVID vaccines the way we get, you know, I don't know, measles, chicken pops, mumps, malaria, where we get all these vaccines as kids. Are we just going to eventually just get kind of a, like kids are just going to get a lifetime booster dose of this vaccine? And it'll, you know, just like you, hopefully they can develop one. But do you think that's feasible given they've shown that there appear to be less side effects and some degree of effectiveness? I mean, I hope so. I mean, I kind of think the one thing that get against that kind of like once kind of when you're young thing is that COVID doesn't seem stable enough for that, right. you know, like that we it's like I, I think it's pro it seems to be at least falling more into the kind of flu category where we need to kind of get like almost a yearly update or something like that, that, you know, if it continues to kind of mutate and evolve in such a way. I mean, I, again, I that would be an. I, I haven't talked enough to virologists or whatever about what makes things like measles or you know rubella or some of these kind of things like polio a situation where we just you yeah. Know, as far as sh- I know, it's one the same vaccine. From, it's the same vaccine that's been. Around. I don't know that there's. It was yeah. a good question. I think it's the same vaccine like when we were kids and got it. So I yeah, don't and think certainly there's... it's the type of thing where you know I it's I remember I, I went I, you know I was traveling recently uh, to, to uh, uh, globally I mean pre COVID and I had to I, I think I got an update to one of them like I think it was either measles or polio because you know it had been like thirty years or something like that and they're like oh we might as well give you an update just just to kind of you know just to give you an update basically but you know that kind of time frame I mean I hope COVID gets to the point where that's the kind of time frame that we need updates on, as opposed to having to get this kind of yearly patch essentially on it, like we do with the flu. Well, I think what'll be also be interesting to see is that, you know, if you do 365 days a year times an average, even right now, let's say it stays at about 300 deaths a day, you're still talking 100,000 deaths a year from COVID. My guess is that's going to be an acceptable number for society going forward, given it's, you know, probably double the normal average of flu. So now you now, and by the way, one of the things we're going to have to learn over a longer period of time is maybe, I hate to say it this way, maybe other deaths go down as COVID deaths go up, you know, the old Mm -hmm. expression from a statistician, you know, it's a, well, it's both a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, uh, not, not a single hazard model, which is competing hazards model, which is you can only die once. And so if you die of COVID, you're not dying of cancer. You're not dying of heart attack. You're not dying of stroke. You're not dying of the flu. You're dying of COVID. And so it could be that the number of excess deaths, which is something you start out with, is not 100,000 because a, a, some fraction of those people would have died of something else. That's right. And I mean, also, you know, even if kind of COVID is endemic and it's, you know, it becomes like the flu, we can't really get rid of it. You know, I, I think we're go- only going to get better and better at treating COVID cases. So, you know, I mean, I don't know if the equal, I mean, the, you know, society may 
be okay with an equilibrium of 100,000, you know, in the short term, but hopefully that equal, whatever equilibrium it is, will hopefully get down to kind of, you know, the 50,000 flu level or something like that within, right. a few, within the next couple of years. I think that's, you bring up a great point, which is something that I'm sure you thought about early on in the pandemic, and many of us did, which is, let me just not die of COVID and live long enough until they get therapeutics that if I get it, they can do something about it. And then the vaccine made that a very viable situation where we weren't going to like likely, but still yeah. possible, likely to die. And that you're right, five years from now, I mean, they may have the master therapeutic that if you get COVID, you know, you just take one pill and then all of us at home or some oral vaccine or not a vaccine, oral uh, therapeutic and it, and the symptoms go away. And my, and that's, I know it's been my goal, which is let me live long enough so that I don't die if I get it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, to get extra optimistic, maybe all this kind of money experience research that we're pumping into treating, you know, COVID is actually helpful against other things like the, you know, I mean, we, it's not like we don't like, we haven't advanced in treating the flu over the, you know, over the many years that the flu has been around as well. But I mean, a lot of these kind of antiviral strategies hopefully are kind of going to not only address COVID, but other viruses actually that have been killing people all this time. Yeah. You brought up a very good point. They think this MRNA delivery system may be helpful for cancers. So all of a sudden, you're right, this massive investment in science may also lead to other uh, ancillary types of benefits. Well, it's been great to talk for a few minutes here about COVID. Um, why don't we spend, and why don't we move now for the rest of Q1 here to a little bit of sports? And maybe um, since, you know, since I'm sitting in the hot seat today, um, I'll bring up a sport that's near and dear to my heart, which is one that was really thrilling and exciting uh, on Sunday, which was the PGA Championship. Shane, first, let me ask you, you could be honest here. Did you watch any of the PGA Championship? And do you know what happened on the 72nd hole of the PGA Championship? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did not watch it live, I have to say. I, 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 was, I, I wasn't watching live, but yes, I am, I am aware of, of this crazy ending to the, to the PGA Championship. Yeah, so again, a couple things. So for those that don't know, Justin Thomas won the PGA. He was seven strokes back at the start of the day. Um, and by the way, one of my favorite statistics that's ever computed is he wasn't, and this is fascinating. He, I forget, it might've been George Casella. I forget who, did, who came up with the statistic. He wasn't seven back in second place. He was seven back in seventh place. So let's think about that. Yeah. He not only has to catch the leader, but he also has to catch the other five people that are in front of him. And actually, that's what his, it was very fascinating, that's what the, the caddy of Justin Thomas, Bones McKay, talked to him about. He goes, you're only four back of second. Forget about the leader. If the leader shoots 67, you're not winning anyway. So don't even worry about the leader. Just catch the guy in second place. I thought it was a fascinating kind of both analytics comment, but it was also a comment that says, you're right, you're, you really are, you know, you argue you're the equivalent of 10 back, 11 back, because there's six guys in front of you. What do you think about that type of thing? Yeah, no, and I mean, I've often kind of thought, I, I, I have described that. I remember ta- watching the Masters, you know, uh, with, you know, uh, uh, this year and, and talking about this exact thing is and the fact that the Sheffer was sort of so far ahead. I'm like, well, the second place, you know, somebody who's like at, in like sixth or seventh place, even if they're only like a shot or two off of, you know, second place is in a much worse position because they, they don't just, you know, they obviously they need 
if you're right behind the lead, or if, you, if you're in second place, you need two things to happen. You need to have a great day and you need the leader to have a bad day. But if you, you know, if you're in like 10th place, you need the leader to have a bad day. And, you know, well, that was what was shocking about Justin Thomas. He was seven yeah. back in seventh place. Yeah. And then, and again, I feel so bad a guy. I think it was Chilean Mito Pereira, double bogey the last hole. Yeah. It, you may remember, you may not have been following golf then. It reminded me, I think it was the British Open, but I, guy Jean Vandenveld. Yes. I remember uh, double bogey the 72nd hole, very, or maybe even the triple bogey did a very similar thing. I think thing. it was a triple bogey, uh, you know, and when all he had to do was play it safe and he decided to, to go for broke. Exactly. And then Pereira did the same thing. He just, he wanted to blast one down the right-hand side of the fairway. And of course, there's water on the right-hand side of the fairway. And so if he had played it out to the left, then he can possibly just get it onto the green and two putt and win. And of course he went into the water and then he still had a chance to get it up and down and he hit it over the green. It was just, it shows you, um, it was the, uh, I was both happy and sad in golf. It was, it was one of those really tough things to watch. And you have to think analytically, you know, you know, it's always funny. Like, obviously we can't just have an outcome bias because we saw what happened. I just have always thought if you're a pro golfer, I understand there's nerves and pressure, massive nerves and pressure, but there has to be a way to just in some sense say, I'm, there's no way I'm getting more than a five. And you know what? I'm going to make it, I'll make this up, Shane, 60, 40, not more than that. 60, 40, I'm going to get a four versus a five on this par four. You know what? I'm going to hit an iron 260, 250. It's going to go in the fairway. I'm going to have 200 yards to the green. You know what? I'll end up somewhere near the green. Worst case, my third shot's on the green. I two putt. And you know what? There we go. But you have to take six out of play. You just have to one shot up. And the other thing about the PGA, the other thing about the PGA here is that it's a three-shot playoff. So the penalty, if you'd like, of being in a playoff is not as bad like one hole and done you have a three hole playoff. Yeah. No, I agree completely. And I think you, I mean, you said yourself, I think the key thing that we're not accounting for as much as we should is just the nerves of it. I think there's no higher pressure kind of sports moment, kind of moment than, than that kind of final round, especially of a lot of a major tournament. And I think part of, part of the, you know, I think that really psychologically affects players, both their decision-making and actual kind of performance. But I also think it, it also kind of, there's this kind of effect of, there's almost a selection bias in our viewing of it because probably, you know, there are nine, 99 out of a hundred tournaments, they actually do play it safe. Yeah, exactly. Everything goes according to plan. And we just don't even note it because the guy that was leading won the tournament. And that's just kind of, you know, it's not really noted. But we, of course, in these big moments, in these big tournaments where people are more likely, I think, to psychologically break down, that's when we actually see, you know, kind of, you know, it's almost like we're viewing a, a disproportionately frequent kind of breakdown because of the attention that it's given. So before we leave golf and before we leave Q1, I want to ask you, two questions related to the tournament again. So I had never heard of, and probably you had never heard of this guy, Mito Pereira, uh, before this tournament. As a matter of fact, he was ranked, I think, somewhere around 100th in the world. It would be surprising that either one of us would have heard of him. Given he's now came in second, or tied for third, I guess third, because it was a playoff, in a major, but he lost in a heartbreaking way that, you, that one argues could scar you. 
Is he more likely to win a major in your eyes in the future than you thought before the tournament? Or is he less likely because, wow, this one's going to take almost forever to get over? How do you view it? Um, I mean, more likely, I think, just because I think the, 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 the bigger effect is that him being so close to winning really kind of changes my my prior my opinion about what his skill level so this is wasn't jordan speed blowing the second of his masters where he yeah. had already won three majors at the time where you knew jordan speed could yeah. do it this is very different yeah. than that yeah so i mean i i put you know prior to that if i'd even known that he existed prior to the pga i would have put very low probability on him ever winning a major because you know, I just, you know, because I'd never heard of him, I wouldn't, you know, that would be a very low probability. I'm going to up the probability more that he was even competitive, that competitive at a major for him winning in the future one. Uh, you know, you could bring it down a little bit because of whatever psychological damage he he was, in, you know, was inflicted upon him by the way in which he'd lost. But no, I, I, I in my mind, it increases my odds in the future for him. And maybe just the last thing before we leave golf, I don't know if you saw, but Tiger made the cut again. Mm-hmm. But he yeah. only played the third round. He ended yeah. up having to withdraw physical illness, et cetera. Uh, shot 79. Again, seemed like the Masters all over again. The Masters, remember, 71, 71, 78, 78. Here it was 74, 70, uh, 69, 74, 69, 79 withdraw. Does he ever win a major again? Or do you think it's just going to take time? It's just, you know. I think it's they, just going to take time. I mean, I think this particular year i mean we were all kind of shocked, shocked that he made played. it back in time right and you know i mean i think it's a credit to his tenacity and determination you know kind of and and his training regime that he was able to do that but it, it does seem like he's just not quite there enough such that like you know he can get through an entire four rounds of a major tournament and so i would put pretty low odds on him you know, making it through the U.S. Open or British Open, assuming he even tries to attempt those two this year. But he, another, says, he said beforehand yeah. he was going to play the British. Whether he ends yeah. up playing the U.S. Open, who knows? Right. But I mean, you know, I you know another off season to kind of further his healing and further his training. You know, I mean, he still is when he's, you know, when he's not absolutely limping around the course. He's still obviously very competitive. I mean, I I I, I think I think what we've observed this year only increases again my probability that he wins a future major as opposed to what before we came into this year but how do you balance the i'll call it rest and increased health with age i mean yeah. he would now be i mean as you remember a, a year ago phil mickelson became the oldest person ever to win a major at 50 julio sporos won one at 48 but tiger's going to be 47 this year so how do you like how many years does he have left in your mind? Let's imagine he gets healthy in the off season. You know, the good thing about golf yeah. now is the majors basically ended like July. I think the British is the last one. So he has nine months between then and the start of the next masters only to train for the major season. Does he have five more years left where you think he can be competitive or maybe more? How, how old was Tom Watson? 59. When he almost won the British open. 59. There you go. There's the upper bound. <laughs> That's our current estimate of the upper bound. Sorry. So that, so in your mind, and I mean, Tiger's obviously famously, you know, athletic and has this training regime that, you know, is enviable would be enviable by, you know, the Tom Watsons of the world. So in your mind, he has maybe 50 more to play where he's competitive and you're only saying he's going to maybe win. He just needs to win one of those 50, not that, you know, given his historical rates, like 20%, one out of 50 is not so high. Yeah. And he's got an auto entry in the masters till the end of time. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, he's got an auto entry into all of them. Actually, yeah, he doesn't right. really. PGA, I think, is to leave US 60 Open, or you 65. To qualify, right? U.S. Open, he does, but yeah, he does. But because he won the Masters, actually, in 2019, he gets some number of years of oh, automatic cool. qualification yeah. and all of that. Well, this has been the first quarter of Moneyball. We've talked about some COVID. We've talked about some golf. We still have three quarters to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, here with my friend and co-host, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, are here every week here on Wharton Moneyball to bring you the world of sports and business through the lens of statisticians. So, uh, Cade, uh, Cade, Shane, we uh, just talked about COVID and golf in Q1. We have Neil Greenberg from the Washington Post coming up in Q4. Um, one of the topics, obviously, we haven't yet talked about on the show, which is a, you know, a, a sport of big interest to two of us is the NBA. Um, as we sit here taping on Tuesday, the Warriors are up 3-0 on Dallas in the Western Conference Finals, game four tonight. Um, the Heat and the Celtics, Celtics tied it up last night with a thrash down of the Heat, but, you know, both teams are banged up. That series is at 2-2. So before we get to what 538 predictions are, which are fascinating right now, how do you see the NBA playoffs going right now? And what are you thinking? Well, I think, you know, again, I, I'm very curious to see what kind of the betting odds are at or what 538 says. But, you know, basically, you know, you, you've got to give the Warriors about twice as much probability as either the uh, as either the Heat or Celtics. Right. Because, I mean, again. I guess I'm kind of, you know, well, I, I would love to be proven wrong just because it'd be super well, exciting. Well, here we but go. You ready? I, I think the Warriors are in the finals at this point. Okay. I'm putting You're the ready. Warriors You're ready the for the odds? You ready? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, by the way, this is not staged. I don't think Shane looked up what 538's odds nope. are. Here they are right now. Surprised. As of right now, what the Celtics are still the favorite. <laughs> insane. It's insane. And take a guess what you think 538 has their odds are of winning. The finals winning for the Celtics Celtics. Well, I, I, we already know they're insane. So, you know, why not like 50% or something silly? Oh, you're way off 54%. Jeez. And it has the warriors at only 25%. It has them as a 95% chance, which probably you and I would agree with at yeah. least to make the finals, but then only tw- there are three to one dog versus the Celtics or the heat in the finals. Oh, come on. Craziness. Craziness. I, if, I, if I had to guess, I would have flipped it the other way, yeah. right? With, with, based on what I'm seeing right now. But again, they have their current ratings and full strength ratings, and the Warriors are just fourth, yeah. according to them. And the Celtics are way, way above. Yeah, no, I, it, it makes no sense to me. I mean, the, the Warriors are the only team that probabilistically, rationally, could be in the area of 50% now to win it all, right? Because they, you know, I mean, there's a very easy model that says that 50%, they, you know, they're, they're uh, basically, we're putting them in the finals. They're going to, they're guaranteed to beat the Warriors and then coin flip at that point. But yeah, I mean, for, for them to, you know, they have to, yeah, I guess it's like a three to one underdog. They have to be for whatever yeah. the winner, the Celtics and, and Heat. Yeah, because end. if you're, let's assume 95% is essentially one. Yeah. I mean, I understand it's not, but essentially they're yeah. guaranteed to make it to the finals and a 25% chance of winning the finals. All right, so it's a 28% yeah. 
Yeah. So it's they're 72 to 28 in the finals. I, you and I, I mean, you take a three to one bet on the Warriors right now in the finals. Of course, that's only you the would. second craziest part of all this, which is that the Celtics specifically, even though it's two two in the series, like what? It has them you know, a 64 percent chance to make the finals. By the way, and then we could do the math here. Yeah. If they make the finals, their chance of winning the finals is 54 percent. So that. That means they've got to be an 80% chance plus to win the finals, according to this. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. By the way, one thing I don't know, we could look this up. Who actually has home court in the finals? Like, I don't know who ended up with a better record between the Celtics, Heat, and the Warriors. That would be something here while we're speaking. I mean, the Warriors were the three seed. No, no, I know that. But but what were their actual records? Let's see here. NBA standings. Hold on. We could do this live here on Morton Moneyball. So the Heat ended up the season with 29 losses, the Celtics 31, and the Warriors 29. Okay. So if the Warriors played – listen to this, Shane, to make it even crazier. The Celtics with the worst play regular the Warriors season in the finals. Well, they're tied with the Heat. I don't know which one yeah. of them would be one or two. I don't know what yeah. their record was against each other in the regular season. The Warriors would have home court advantage against the Celtics in the finals. That's a fact. That's crazy. Yeah. I, and I mean, like, I guess, you know, I mean, along the lines of it, do you, I mean, I'm kind of curious. I mean, already let's conclude that those, those, uh, the, the, those 538 odds are, are, are insane. But do you at least, are, are you a buyer on the Celtics being a favorite in the East now based on what you've seen so far in the series? I think I am. I think that um, the one opportunity the Heat had was the great Jimmy Butler. And the reality is he's worn down. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just not healthy right now. And he's not healthy enough to do enough damage. And between... You know, uh, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, for some reason, he didn't play well for us, but Al Horford looks, you know, Al yeah. Horford's actually playing well. They've got, uh, you know, uh, the two, I forget the two centers. They both have the same last name. I can't, I just always forget which Williams or something like that. They, they've got two centers that are Robert Williams and I forget the other one, but they've got guys playing well. No, I, yeah, I do. I like, even though two of the games remaining are at the heat, I do like the Celtics to to win that series. I think you don't like them at like sixty five percent or whatever, though, do you? Or do you, do you do you? So do you think? Um, like, I guess I'm sorry. Like, is the five thirty eight model only misappraised once the finals start, or do you, do you, do you think you know would would you kind of even disagree with that? That's thoughts? fascinating. I would say that's a little bit too high for the yeah. Celtics to make it. But if you told me sixty forty, I would probably take that okay. bet. I would probably say I'm not giving away money at a 60-40 bet. Two to one seems a little bit high to me. But, yeah, I think it's just totally misappraised what the Warriors are. I just yeah. think, you know, and maybe it's because, you know, I don't know how much time-weighted decay. Let's say we just look at the last – the playoffs and the last 10 games of the season. Forget the first 70 games when Clay Thompson was coming back from injury. Forget that the, you know, the Warriors weren't even trying to be the one seed. They knew Phoenix was so far ahead. Didn't even matter, you know, two seed, three seed, who cares? We're going to, you know, we, we think we're going to make the finals anyway. I just think we have to talk to Neil Payne and others at 538 about how it's, how it's updating it. Like, what is the window in which it's computing those ratings? Because right now that just seems a li- way too high to me. Way, way, way too high. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, it, it seems like, you know, you, I mean, I think if Audi was here with us, he'd just be like, why aren't they just shrinking more to base rates? I mean, you know, it just, it, it makes, in a base rate sense, it just, it, it just kind of, it defies, it defies reason. I think that, do you that think, the Celtics do you, would be so. Do you bigger. think Dallas takes a game tonight or not? Nah, it's over. I think it's probably over. If I, you know, I would probably put it at least. Yeah, I would. I would put sixty forty that the uh, that the Warriors went tonight. Are they? At, is it in Dallas? It's in Dallas. I think okay. it's, it's a pick'em game or minus one. It's fifty five forty five that the Warriors take it. I think just because. So you, you would know, say it's a slightly it slightly mispriced betting odds, being that the Dallas is favored by yeah. a point here. Slightly mispriced. If someone forced you to bet, you would probably take the Warriors. Yeah, even though they're on the road. Yeah, I think well, so. we'll see. Certainly by next week's show of Wharton Moneyball, we're going to know who the participants are in the NBA finals. I don't know what the schedule is. My guess is knowing how they schedule. Let's think that might even be there might even be game one of the NBA finals by a week from today. They typically like to play games on Sunday. So let's see if today. Yeah, there, there could be a game one on Sunday. Well, no, because they the Heat and the Celtics could easily go seven and that game could be Sunday. Probably the NBA finals might even start a week from today, but that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, definitely, um, definitely, and we'll see if we'll see if if the Celtics make it through against the Warriors, whether they'll be favored like eighty to twenty or whatever by five thirty-eight or not by that point. So let's talk a little bit about horse racing. We just had the second part of the Triple Crown, uh, the Preakness this last weekend. Of course, what was interesting is Rich Strike, the horse that the eighty to one horse that won the Derby, did not even race in the Preakness, which was disappointing to all of us because you know we're all waiting for the next. We're always waiting for the next Triple Crown winner. Um, I wanted to ask you a question. So there was a horse, Epicenter, who was the favorite in the Derby, didn't win, but ended up second. Now ended up second in the Preakness. So I don't know about you, but like if I were valuing horses or putting a strength parameter on horses, this horse has done extraordinarily well, right? Like Mm -hmm. I understand it didn't win. It did not win either race that it was favored. But it, became, it came in second in two major races. How do you think about that in terms of the horse's performance? And by the way, just to get an opinion, if you were the owner of the horse, if you think there's a strong enough signal that it's now a great horse, would you even bother racing it in the, uh, uh, the Belmont? Belmont? Or like, you know what? It's, it, it's not going to win the Triple Crown. This is a killer of a race, maybe literally and figuratively. Why even bother? It's, I, it's proven its economic value. It's already run two long stakes races. Let's leave it out of the Belmont. How, how do you think about the performance of a horse that came in second, second? First of all, let me ask you a question. If Epicenter and Rich Strike and early voting, which is the horse that won mm-hmm. the Preakness, if all three of them were racing in the Belmont, who would you take right now, given both of those horses beat Epicenter, but it's come in second twice. Rich Strike ran the Belmont, uh, the, the Derby, but rested, so it's got rest going for it. Yeah. Early voting just beat Epicenter. How would you – this is a great – by the way, this is a great yeah. question. I love Wharton Moneyball. I mean, I, I, I guess – How I, would you rank these three horses right now to run in the Belmont? I would take Rich Strike. Um because it beat, well, sorry, the second place horse in both races. Again, epicenter, epicenter. Epicenter. So I would take Rich Strike over Epicenter because it beat Epicenter, obviously, in, in the intermediary length race and is rested for 
the longer race, right? Because the Belmont is the longest of the that three. That is true. Yeah. One, I think the Derby's a mile and a quarter. I think the Preakness might be – it's either a mile and an eighth or a mile and three-eighths. And then the Belmont's clearly a mile and a half. The Belmont is the long slog of a race. Right. And so early voting has not proved to me that it can rent when, you know, it's one of the shortest of the races. Uh, so I think that uh, for whatever reason in my mind, you know, and maybe it's, it's the various kind of segments we've done on horse racing before, but in my mind, like the kind of length of the race is a pretty key determinant of performance, which is what makes triple crown winners so rare and exceptional is that they actually are able to kind of basically you know, be, you know, win, win at these different lengths. I think that's relatively rare. So I, I would, I would actually kind of give, I would give it to, to Rich Strike as, as, you know, kind of the, my, my favorite in that. But yeah. I mean, in terms of your kind of first question about whether or not you'd actually have a voting racing, because there is kind of proved at least, you know, top yeah, three performance. Yeah, second, second. Yep. Again, you know, I mean, again, if you're trying to kind of sell this horse as like something you wanted to breed and like, you know, promote it, I, I think having it perform well, at a longer race would be helpful to its portfolio. Of course, well, that so, is based on whether you believe it really would perform well at that longer race. Well, that's I, the other I, thing. You're bringing in a source of uncertainty you yeah. might not need. I actually don't know if they've announced whether Epicenter is running yeah. the, uh, the Belmont yet. I know that Rich Strike is, like they announced, running the Belmont. And I'm pretty sure early voting, the horse that won the Preakness is not running the Belmont. But we'll have to see in the you know 12 days when the, horse, when the race is actually run. Let me move to another sport before we get to another major sport we're going to talk about, which is baseball. I want to spend a few minutes talking about the NFL. And I don't know why this struck me the other day, but without maybe looking at the rundown or you can, there's a conference in the NFL right now that I can't believe how great the quarterbacks are in this division. Do you know which division I'm about to say? Did you look at the rundown? Uh, I mean, I did look at the rundown, but I would have I would have gotten this anyway. I mean, I think the obvious the standout is the AFC West. Yeah, I mean, um, who's the best quarterback in that division? Let me just repeat to everybody. Well, I think we all know who it is, but it's there's Patrick Mahomes for the Chiefs. There's Derek Carr for the Raiders. There's Russell Wilson now for the Broncos and Justin Herbert for the Chargers. So well, let me ask you a question. Who do you think is the worst quarterback of those four? Who do you think is the best? And how much spread do you think there is between the best and the worst there? I think, I, I, I think Carr is the worst of those four. And I, again, all, all of them are above average quarterbacks. So I'm, I, I don't want to, you know, I, th- I think Carr is a great quarterback, actually. But he is the worst of those four, in my opinion. Um, but I don't think there is that much spread between the best and the worst. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, that, that division is absolutely stacked with, court, with, with great quarterbacks. I think the AFC in general is absolutely stacked with great quarterbacks because I do think the AFC West is probably, you know, does stand out as being, you know, having the, the kind of greatest kind of overall quarterbacking talent. But I mean, look at the, look at the uh, AFC North as well. Deshaun Watson, Joe Burrow, <laughs> Lamar Jackson, and well, whoever Pittsburgh know, has as their quarterback. Kenny Pickett. Yeah, I mean Pittsburgh. Whatever you know, Pittsburgh for the first time in like a couple of decades is has you know an unpredictable quarterbacking situation. But I mean that's still that's a stacked you know that's a stacked kind of division too. Well, let me tell you, it's also why I, you know, since I'm a Buccaneers fan, everybody on Wharton Moneyball here knows that, why in some sense I love the Brady's choice to come back. Uh, This reminds me again of all of his years with the Patriots where the rest of the division sucked. 
I mean, the Saints have Jameis as their quarterback. I mean, they're going to be fine, but it's, you know, it's no more Peyton, no more uh, yeah. Peyton as the coach, no more Sean Peyton, no more Drew Brees. It's Jameis Winston. Um, the Panthers, I don't know. A lot of historical know. disrespect to the Mark Sanchez, Chad Pennington Jets there. But well, okay. that's true. Right. That, I, that intend, intended. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, they were fine as quarterbacks. Yeah. You know, they're not Tom Brady. All I'm commenting no, on no, I, I agree. that divisions and Matt Ryan is now, I think, no yeah. longer on the Falcons. No, and it's right? interesting because when is Brady... Matt Ryan still on the Falcons? No, no, no he's yeah, on the Colts now. Okay. So, yeah. Like, who are the, like, put this way. What odds would I have to give you to take the rest of the division versus the Buccaneers in that division next year? Oh, well, I mean, I guess what odds are there on a Brady injury? Because that yeah, would, right. you know, that would basically have to. That's you know, it, yeah. right? If, um, if he's healthy, they win that division, right? And it is interesting to sort of know, but to sort of see how much these things do kind of can change pretty quickly. Because when he first went to Tampa Bay a couple of years ago, that people were like, oh, he's crazy to go to the, the NFC South. It's stacked. You got Drew Brees in that division. You got Matt Ryan in that division. You got Cam Newton, I guess, was probably the Carolina quarterback in that division. That division yeah. a couple of years ago was actually <laughs> pretty right. stacked quarterback-wise. Or again, looking back just a couple of years ago to the NFC, the NFC West was also very stacked and has kind of cleared out in the meantime. So, yeah, I, I, I think it, these things can change pretty quickly. But I, I think it's a really interesting dynamic in general that we have at least in terms of like young, good quarterbacks, the AFC is a, is an absolute like slaughterhouse. And then the NFC is basically Brady and Rogers. Brady and Rogers are the elite ones. Yeah. Although I mean, I, I mean, you know, Dak Stafford, maybe too. Stafford. Oh, I forgot about Stafford. Oh, and that's disrespectful. The guy just won the Super Bowl. My apologies. Well, let me yeah. just say, by the way, but I, I, but, but I guess we all those are you know other than Prescott, those are all kind of much on the older side. It's kind of a weird, absolutely you know, kind of also, age schism. I think the Rams division also next year is going to. I think it's an overrated division. I think the Rams are obviously very, very good. Yeah, but I'm not convinced the 49ers are going to be that great next year. I'm not that yeah. convinced the Seahawks are going to be that great next oh, the year. Seahawks, the Seahawks might be competing for the number one seed if they don't actually get any kind of quarterback. Yeah. I mean, they've the, currently got Drew Locke competing with Geno Smith for their quarterback. No, no, I know that. And then the last part is I, I'm not convinced. I, I'm not that sold, especially with all the turmoil that's going on in the yeah. offseason. I'm not that sold on the Cardinals and Kyler Murray. I, you know, put this way, I like great, being great team for the first half of the season. Yeah, I, I like being the Rams in that division, yeah, too. How agreed. about that? Agreed. No, and I, it's sort of, again, you sort of, again, you kind of, a lot of things can change. And, you know, I, I might look like an idiot in a few months when the, when the games actually start up. But, you know, it just looks like, you know, every single AFC division is going to be kind of competitive. And, and you know, there's many good teams there. And the NFC, it's like, I, I feel like you can kind of win, write the division win, you know, how much uncertainty do we have in the division winners of the nfc sitting here right now tampa well, bay in the nfc south i think that's Green almost bay in the nfc north i think that's a very good chance you know the vikings are a good team but i don't see them the bears yeah. obviously not i don't even know who's the fourth team in lions that no 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 <laughs> right yeah so, that, so you're right no no and who's and then the well the NFC East, that's the one. Yeah, division. that's probably the most wide open one. That's the but, wide, uh, most wide open division. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. In some sense, and by the way, let's imagine we make this prediction. Let's imagine you think the Cowboys are the best team in the NFC East, which is probably right. Let's say right now you and I say Cowboys, Bucks, 
Packers, Rams. What is the probability you think that's actually the four division winners at the end of this season? If you had to give a probability to the joint statement that those are the oh. four division winners, what odds are you? What odds? I can't give a very high probability a joint statement with that many things involved, right? Well, I mean, you, it's, yeah. we just said know, the Rams are going to win, the Bucks are going to win. But... I know, I know. Uh, I would, I would, I don't know, like you know. 20% at most <laughs> just because right. you know you only need one of those things to go wrong especially the cow you know yeah so you basically know, just, you're saying the cowboys are maybe 30 40 yeah. percent and the other teams have a high probability well that's been the first two quarters of wharton moneyball we've talked about a lot of things we talked about some golf we talked about some horse race we talked about some football we talked about some covid please stay with us for q3 and join us right after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to q3 here on wharton moneyball this is eric bradlow professor of marketing and statistics and i'm here with my co-host and friend professor of statistics shane jensen some combination of us kate massey and adi weiner here every week here on wharton moneyball the show we talk about sports statistics and business and coming up in q4 we have our standard covid interview well it's not a covid interview but it's covid period interview segment we're going to be talking to neil greenberg uh, Neil is a staff writer on analytics at the Washington Post, so we're going to talk about all kinds of topics with him. So, Shane, the one topic we've yet to talk about in this show is baseball. Obviously, we're about a quarter of the way through the baseball season. Before we get into any details, why don't we just start with what's caught your eye in baseball so far this season? We're enough into the season that you can get some sense of the teams. But we're also not far enough into the season that you can't say any teams that maybe like the Orioles and the Tigers, like the rest of the teams aren't out of it. So how do you think about what's caught your eye in baseball so far this season? Well, I mean, there's a few different things. I mean, one thing is, I mean, one thing that I was kind of hoping would happen that has been happening so far is that the Angels have been sticking with the Astros in the ALS. I would really, you know, I mean, I've been sharing hard for the Angels to, you know, make it to the playoffs. Um you know, for the last few seasons, of course, they, they happen to be in a division with a, an, an actual juggernaut in the Astros, but the Angels are uh, keeping up with them this season. And in part, that's because their pitching is not as terrible as it usually is. And they've also been getting absolutely unworldly performance from their kind of biggest three stars. I mean, Shohei Otani obviously is able to contribute on both sides of uh, sides of the, the game. Mike Trout is doing his usual Mike Trout things. I mean, the guy's probably the best, ba- I mean, is the base, ba- best baseball player in baseball kind of consistently over the last like decade or so. Um, and kind of a little bit of a surprise here, a guy who's come out of kind of nowhere from here is, is Taylor Ward. I don't know how much yeah. you've been kind of, tra- have been tracking him, but you know, his, he's actually got a higher, he's got a 1.194 OPS hit nine home runs. He's already accumulated 2.3 war himself in this kind of relatively young season. So, so, I mean, he, he I don't know, he kind of came out of nowhere as far as I, I'm concerned, but maybe, maybe people knew more about him, uh, that know more about him kind of saw this coming, or maybe it is kind of, you know, again, small sample size and he'll, you know, not be at that level for most of the rest of the season. So before you get into details, I got a lot of uh, baseball question to ask you. So right now the Yankees have in the loss column a four game lead. The twins have a four game lead. The Astros, as you mentioned, have a short lead because of the Angels have a one-game lead. The Mets have a seven-game yeah. lead in the loss column over our Phillies. The Brewers have a two-game lead over the Cardinals. And the Dodgers have a one-game lead over the Padres. 
if which division do you think like is the Mets division over? Is the NL East no. over? The- no, 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 no. I don't think so. I mean, I think both the Phillies and I mean, a I think the Mets will. You know, the Mets have been hit by a lot of injuries. I don't think the Mets are necessarily going to be able to kind of sustain their performance through the various injuries. I mean, some of their best players have gone down now that Scherzer's on the DL as well, um, or IL. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, and I think the Phillies and Braves specifically are, are just too good, too good, basically, to be, you know, they're, they're above 500 teams. So I think that that particular division will get closer. Um, but, you know, whether, whether or not, I mean, you know, whether they actually, you know, I, I, I'm not saying the Mets aren't going to be there at the end of the season, but I don't think that they're not going to run away with it, in my opinion. So which division in baseball do you think is the best division? Is it the NL West? I mean, I, the Dodgers, I still is Padres, the Giants are all significantly yeah. or above 500. The Diamondbacks are at 500. The Rockies are the worst team in that division at 19 and 22. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I think, you know, the Diamondbacks and Rockies will be below 500 by the end. We'll, we'll stay below 500, I think. But yeah, I mean, just having those three teams, you know, again, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a couple wildcard teams coming out of, of that division, basically, in addition to the division winners. But, you know, I, I say that and, you know, easily, you know, somebody out of the East could be a wildcard team as well. Now, we've been talking about, because, well, Adi and I are Yankee fans, talking about the Yankees all season. I just noticed something. The Yankees are 29 and 13, and the Dodgers are 28 and 13, so roughly the same record. The Yankees are plus 65 in run differential. The Dodgers are plus 97. (laughs) Yeah. So if the Dodgers and Yankees played right now, right, based on whether it's Pythagorean theorem or whatever, you'd have to say the Dodgers would be a heavy favorite over the Yankees just by their run differential, which is in 40 games, it's plus 32, which means yeah. we just multiply that out for the season. They'd be over, they'd be a, over a hundred run advantage over the Yankees. Yeah. No. And I mean, I think it's, you know, they're, they're an interesting pair because, you know, you know, obviously payroll has a huge part to do with how stacked these teams are. They have roughly equal or, or relatively similar payroll, but I do think the Dodgers have assembled a much more kind of, uniformly stacked team conditional on the same sort of payroll. I think, I think the Dodgers are the better team, whether that, you know, in a playoff series or something like that, whether I, I don't know if they're much better enough that I would deviate from my kind of baseline coin flip sort of like rate, but I think they are a better team. Well, I'll tell you what bothers me about the Yankees and you tell me whether I'm thinking about this wrong. So let me tell you the last three hitters on the Yankees. So there's, Ian Kiner Falefala. Isaiah Kiner Falefala. Yeah. Yeah. There's Gonzalez and Trevino. Their batting averages are 256, 195, and 213. And by the way, Aaron Hicks is leading off and he's batting 208. Yeah. And Aaron uh, Rizzo, Anthony Rizzo, is batting 230. What's Trevino playing? Trevino's playing catcher. Oh, 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 so uh, he's the regular catcher? They're, 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 they rotate back and forth. What concerns me about the Yankees is they have one, two, three, roughly four, five, six guys starting that are 250 and below. Yeah. Now, that might be the entire major leagues right now. Everyone's hitting badly. But I'll just comment that that doesn't sound like a 200-plus million-dollar payroll when, you know, I hate to say it, but just, you know, don't pitch to Judge, don't pitch to Stanton, and take your chances with the other seven guys. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's Rizzo and some. I, I mean, I, I think the Yankees, 
you know, again, I, I mean, no, no team besides the Dodgers is kind of, I think, stacked one to nine necessarily. But I, I yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is part of what I think makes Yankee hitting kind of streaky is that it is driven essentially by, you know, how hot Stanton and Rizzo and De- LeMahieu and, and, and Judge are that kind of top of the lineup when they're raking. I mean, you see what yeah, happens. I mean, type well, of Judge, thing. I mean, by like, the way, we now finally have somebody I haven't done exactly the math, but it's got to be there. He's now got 17 homers in yeah. 42 games. So we finally I'm not saying he's going to do it. What's your prediction of how many is he going to hit 60? Now, let, let me just say he's currently at a rate above 60. Obviously, mm-hmm. I don't think either one of us is predicting 60. Yeah. Is he getting to 50? I, I think he gets to 50. Again, the big variable is injury, right? Or, or health, right? right? Um, yeah, can he again, hit 33 home runs in 120 games? That's the question. That's what he needs. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's hit, he can. He, he's hit 17 in what, like 40 games, 40. right? Yeah. Or 42 games, yeah. So, yeah, he could definitely do that. Uh, but whether or not he stays healthy, I mean, he's not going to obviously, I think, stay at that rate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would put pretty high odds on well, pretty high odds. I would, I would definitely say it's over 50% in my mind that he gets to 50, which is already incredibly impressive 60. Then you're, then you're really kind of banking on health for the entire season and, and kind of keeping up a pretty, uh, you know, a, a home run rate that we don't, don't see very much anymore, even well, in well, this era of home runs. One of the topics we always talk about on Wharton Moneyball is performance of players over time, over age, their yeah. age curve, and especially for sluggers. So Aaron Judge is 30, or is going to turn 30 mm-hmm. this season. A lot of people are talking about a 10-year, I don't know, $500 million. How many year contract? Remember, this is a big man. Now, I'm not even just talking yeah. about a big man. I'm talking about a really big man. What length of contract knowing that if you, you can't say two or three years, because you're just not going to accept that contract. Yeah. What length of contract and at what dollar figure would you sign him to a 10 year, $350 million contract till he's age 40? Yes, you would. Well, I would, I would only because, but, but under the, you know, kind of explicit understanding that he's not going to be worth 35 million. I mean, you know, 10 years from now, what's 35 million really going to be worth, right? But like, he's not going to be, worth he that probably kind wouldn't of sign that. He probably wouldn't sign yeah. that contract. No, I, 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 yeah, you're, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to get him for 10, 30, 350. That was basically Bryce Harper's contract, right? And that was several years ago. That uh, 13, that. Maybe 13 and 390 or something was yeah, Bryce yeah, yeah, Harper's. Something like that. And so Bryce, Bryce Harper's remaining contract is about that essentially, or, or yes. you know, maybe yeah, almost exactly less. that. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't think you're going to get him for that. I would sign him to, to that to, under the understanding that he would not be worth that kind of amount of money in probably the last five years, but that's definitely, he's worth more than that for the first five years. So besides the Yankees, you even mentioned Mike Trout earlier, something I just looked up his OPS right now is 1.133 for the season. <laughs> I also just looked up him and Manny Machado already in 40 games already yeah. have a war of three. If you multiply that by four, they have a season of a 12, a war of 12. I mean, yeah. I've always thought about the benchmark. If your war is above 10 in a season, you've had it historically. Yeah, great that's season. like, I mean, you know, every, you know, most MVPs don't like, right. are, are like maybe at the 10 range. Right. And so, and also just think about it. The greatest war player of all time, Babe Ruth, had a war, I think, of 162. So if you did war, if you had a war of like 11 or 12 for 12 to 15 seasons, you're Babe Ruth. Yeah, that's right. Could you give people just a historical sense of how great 
Mike Trout is. I mean, well, is yeah, he, is he, I mean, Mickey, I, is he like, Mickey Mantle great? Is he? Is he? Is he? No, you know, I, I think he. I think he's top top five of all time. Like I think you know Babe Ruth, Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, Mike Trout. I mean, among hitters, I mean, hitters is a totally different category, but you know, hitter of all time. And I, I just to get, kind of give people perspective, you know, because it's hard kind of to compare. Uh, you know, like if you kind of look at the kind of like a 162 game baseball reference has this like 162 game war average that they basically calculate right. for every single player. And, you know, as you know, as for perspective, Albert Pujols, first tier Hall of Famer. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You think so? Yeah. He's, yes. acu- he's accumulated 100 war in his entire career up until this season, and he's still accumulating it. But he's basically, uh, his 162 war average is around 5.4, 5.5. I, was, I would have guessed that because I know he's played 19 or 20 yeah. equivalent seasons. Trout's war average is 9.6. <laughs> so Can you give me uh, some know, other great players? Like, can you give... Uh, let me, I, I think Babe Ruth was probably in the kind of... like. Let, I'll just look up Barry Bonds when we're talking. I'll say there, there's only one active player actually even in that stratosphere right now of like you know basically most of these kind of people that were like oh that's going to be a hall of famer future hall of famer in this like five to six range for war average while i look up barry bonds i want you to guess at the only other current player that i know of that has a range kind of you know closer to mike trout wow um i was going to say manny machado just because of how well he's doing this year Manny is, uh, it's a great guess. He's at 5.9. So he's uh, early, still early, relatively, hopefully early in his career, but he's on the Hall of Fame track, but it, it's not Manny Machado. Yeah, and by this the way, is where, this... I'll give you a hint. This is where Audi would come in and be like, oh, war is not the right statistic because it overweights fielding, blah, 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 blah. So a little hint there. Ah, uh, my second guess is going to be a bad guess. So I was going to say something like Mookie Betts or somebody that's, like you, that. That's exactly right. Your bad it's guess. It's Mookie exactly Betts. Right. Mookie Betts. 8.3 war average. He's already in eight years accumulated 50 war, which is half about what Albert Pujols has accumulated in 21 years. Yeah. So regardless of that, let me just say, I would never, if you would ask me to guess, is Mookie Betts on track to be a Hall of Famer? I would have said, I don't know. But now that you've just told me that, yeah. if he gets to, you know, I, I don't know. Are there any people not in the Hall of Fame that have a war of 70? I mean, he's, I mean... Well, there might be a few that, so, I mean, uh, uh, just to kind of close the loop, Barry Bonds is at 8.8 war average. Okay, so, so he's so not Mike even Trout as hitting great. Currently as great. I mean, Trout. most in terms yeah, of war. Wow. Yeah, that, that yeah, puts I mean, we it really, perspective. We need to enjoy Mike Trout as for as long as we have him. But it, now you sort of talk about kind of like what the kind of cumulative war standard should be or, or kind of historically is for the Hall of Fame. And around 70, I think, is kind of where certainly it gets a little bit disputable. So just as an example, Robinson Cano has accumulated 70 war in his career. He's not a Hall, not in my mind. I mean, he's had, I mean, he's been, you know, he's been caught, he's a steroid user. So that's going to probably doom him, at least in the short term anyway. Miguel Cabrera, Gamel Cabrera is at 69 war. Well, if I've got this right, you know, my recollection is not perfect anymore. He won the triple crown, right? He did. He he's got to be. In, yeah, I think. Yeah. And, I, and I he's think also he, won several MVPs. So I think he, I would he's put him a hall in the of Hall of Fame. I would put I would him put in the, the hall, hall of Fame. Fame. But, you know, I don't. Is he a first ballot Hall of Famer? Right. Maybe, but close. Yeah, yeah. he's a Hall of Famer. 
Joey Votto's at 65 war. I think Joey Votto will get into the Hall of Fame. Yes, I do. Do you think so? I think so, too. I think so, too. I mean, certainly, again, in terms of his, you know, average war. Uh, but, I mean, he's fading fast. So, you know, we may. Yeah, right. He, he could really do himself a service by kind of pulling it together for a couple more years and actually contributing positively to his war. So here's another case. I bet you that's really under your radar. All right. Evan Longoria is at 58 war. Yeah. So, no, but he's near the end of the road. I mean, yeah. he's going to be one of those guys that I don't think makes the Hall of Fame. Um, did he have five very, very good years where mm-hmm. he was one of the better players? Let's even say, I'll even say the top 10 percentile in baseball. Yes. Yes, he did. But no, Evan Longoria is not a Hall of Famer, and I don't see him making the Hall of Fame. Yeah. No, one I more to not. kind of put on your radar just okay. to kind of track this a little, like kind of more at the Mookie Betts level. Well, not Mookie Betts level in terms, but but in terms of age, is Paul Goldschmidt. He's accumulated already 51 war. He's averaging 5.6 war. So he could he he's he's on track. So well, that Goldschmidt, the grand, the grand slam he hit last night in the tenth yeah. inning didn't hurt, but that was a that nice. That did hit. not hurt at all. That did not hurt at all. Well, yeah, you know it, it's great to talk about baseball. Maybe in just the last few seconds we have, as, as Shane said, take appreciation for Mike Trout who's around yeah. now, and just quickly in the last few seconds we have, Albert Pujols is tenth all time in hits, fifth all time in home runs, third all time in RBIs and a, basically a 300 lifetime batting average. So we need to also appreciate the great yeah. Albert Pujols while he's And now we out. get to see him pitch occasionally. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Well, so that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We'll be here with Neil Greenberg from the Washington Post in Q4. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Q4 of Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, statistics, sports, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Kate Massey and Adi Weiner, are here every week on Wharton Moneyball, the Zoom edition. One of the great things about uh, Zoom, the Zoom edition of our show, is that we've changed Q4 to be an interview show. So this is where we get to talk to people that are actually in the field of sports analytics. And today is no exception, Shane. We're fortunate to have a returning guest, a friend of the show, Neil Greenberg. Neil's staff writer with the Washington Post, whose beat, well, his beat is our beat. It's his beat is sports analytics. Uh, his analysis and insight can be found in the sports section where he covers all pro sports, but he also covers college football and basketball. And he's a great follow on Twitter, just like we are. We're a W Moneyball and Neil is at, at N Greenberg. Neil, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me back. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. I mean, things have tilted a little bit with the Yankees. We'll get to baseball in a second. With the Yankees, have lost three in a row, and the Red Sox have won five in a row. So I'm less happy, and Shane's more happy. Well, why don't we start with baseball, since we already started <laughs> talking about that a little bit. What are you thinking about this year in baseball? One of the stats that I was, I've brought up earlier in the show is that we have appears to have more 600-plus teams, meaning teams going to win in the high 90s, and more below 400 teams, teams that are going to apparently win less than 60 games. What do you make of the kind of, if you'd like, extreme lack of competitive balance and lack of parity in baseball right now? I mean, it's, it's payroll. I mean, you can see the teams that are spending money, by and large, are the competitors, and those that aren't are finding it very difficult. And you know, the money buys you the sluggers, right? I mean, we, we can, baseball has kind of distilled itself 
down to the, um, you know, the three true outcomes of home runs, strikeouts and walks. Um, strikeouts are, are costly and home runs are costly. And if you're not going to spend the money, you either have to get lucky and uh, string together a lot of hits in an inning in order to make stuff happen. Um, or you got to be really good at drafting and have a bunch of prospects that are low cost come up at the same time and, and be able to do something similar. So it's, um, you know, it's become very difficult, I think, for, uh, for the smaller market teams to, uh, to compete. And, you know, I wrote something along these lines before the season, looking at the payrolls and, you know, what that means overall. So uh, I'm not surprised uh, that we're seeing it. And um, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon unless there's some type of salary floor that's instituted because, you know, you, you can't have a team that's spending $300 million uh, be expected to produce the same as one that's spending $40 million. So what do you think uh, you one structural thing that actually Shane brought, has brought up on the show many times is this concept of a salary floor, <laughs> which, by the way, I think there actually maybe you would know. I always thought there was in baseball because I remember a time a couple of years ago where maybe it was the Rays didn't quite spend enough and they actually had to spend like distribute like $12 billion to the players on the team. But a salary floor could be one. Or right now, of course, there's a soft cap in baseball. I don't think any of us are hard cap kind of guys, but maybe a higher penalty tax. So what do you think are the structural things that baseball can do to kind of bring about some parity? I mean, it's got to be the salary floor. The Orioles are spending less than $30 million on their roster, one-tenth of what the Dodgers are spending. I mean, if you have that type of you know, disparity, you can't possibly expect um, you know, the teams to compete. I'm looking now, teams that are spending under $100 million just one is over 500, the Tampa Bay Rays, um, who are pretty progressive analytically, I guess. Um, so, so maybe they're, they're able to get, you know, the, the, the sum is, is more than the parts. Um, but Kansas City, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the Tampa Bay Rays because I think, I mean, I completely agree. I think there needs to be a more reasonable floor. I mean, obviously there is technically already a floor. I mean, there's league minimum salaries and stuff like that, but it has to be something where I think the floor and see the floor has to be somehow tied to the growth in, in, in kind of the ceiling such that we don't get this magnitude of difference. But I'm glad you bring up the raise because I do think one thing that this kind of competitive imbalance due to salary kind of force uh, the teams that do still want to win but have low, low, low payrolls have to get very creative about how they do it. And it's, you know, they're the teams that tend to try and essentially game the game of baseball. They try and like, you know, get whatever kind of low arbitrages they can here and there. And the Rays are a great example of this where, you know, they're extreme shifting. I, I feel like they've really kind of helped to kind of, you know, lead to this sort of like, um, situation we have in baseball now where a team doesn't really have to if you if you can't afford starting pitching which is really expensive you just have you know nine straight innings one inning a piece of a bunch of random relievers and I, I i i don't think the game is as fun to watch in that form but that you know that's the other that it's almost like the kind of current system is incentivizing teams to try and not cheat but like a game around the margins so i don't know what if you have any thoughts about that yeah, I do. And that's, and, and that's exactly, you know, what's happening, but what, if they find an inefficiency, that's, um, that's worthwhile, the big market teams are just going to spend the money to get it right. We saw that 
with like um, on base percentage and um, you know those those type of things. I think that um, you know anytime you uh, you have an inefficiency that can be exploited, it's only a matter of time. As I said before, the big markets come in and and take advantage of that. Um, yeah, Neil, one of my favorite quotes yeah. was about five years ago in one of my classes. I brought in a gentleman who was at one time a professor of statistics at, at Harvard University, and then he became a the chairman of C- Caesars, literally the chairman of Caesars Entertainment. He was in the business school, not in the department that Shane and I graduated from, not the stat department. His name is Gary Loveman. And his comment was, I'm CEO of Caesars. We're in a $200 million building. The Aria Resort is a $2 billion building. Therefore, the only way I can compete is I can compete on analytics. So I have to have a much better data science team than they have. And so he understood if you have one-tenth the payroll, you got to have a competitive advantage somewhere. And as Shane said, it could be using nine pitchers. It could be the extreme shift. It could be you know, trading assets when they come near arbitration and therefore getting lots of, you know, you can always replenish the pool. Um, is that kind of how you see baseball working in some sense is that the non-salary cap teams will probably have to invest even more in analytics. Yeah. And I, I, um, I kind of use the, uh, the nationals as an example, you know, the nationals are in this really weird spot in that they have to decide kind of what direction do they want to go in? Do they want to be one of these teams that spends money and competes with the, the Mets, Phillies and Braves just in their division, not even including like what's on the other side of major league baseball, or, you know, do they need to get really good at drafting, like you said, and and bringing up these players and, and then flipping them for assets later. Um, That's really the, the two avenues that you have, right? I mean, if you're, there's, you know, the, the rays, I guess are, are um, an exception, but you know, these other teams that aren't spending money um, they have no other way to get talent. And, you know, if you're in a division like the NL East, you know, your, your hands almost forced to spend money because it's really going to be difficult to compete with three teams that are spending money while you're trying to, you know, go a, a whole different route. The challenge, of course, also in baseball, unlike in basketball, since we, Shane and I are in the city of brotherly love, where we trust the process, although we can all point out the Sixers have won no more playoff rounds since they've trusted the process than before. But Eric, trust the process, not the outcomes of the process. No, no, I got that. I, I'm going to get to that in a second. But my point is, there's so much more uncertainty in baseball drafting that building through the draft in baseball, I love your thoughts on this, Neil, I think is a lot harder than building through the draft in many other sports like the NFL and the NBA. Yeah, and the timeline's a lot longer too, right? Even if you get the right guy, it's still going to take, what, two, three years for him to get into the majors. So you not only have to be right, but you have to be able to 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 figure out what to do in the meantime while that that player is progressing um so yeah i mean it's 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 not an enviable position i mean the small market teams are in a very difficult situation and um you know that's why i think we see them you know sometimes you see the 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 players flip for assets that you know you have a lot of people moaning and groaning but um you know there is a value to getting you know, maybe not an A prospect that's going to take three years to get to the majors, but a B prospect that takes you a year and a half because that prospect in the year and a half can also be flipped for other assets. And that's a great you know, point. So I mean, on down the line. 
Yeah, I'm not sure in our eight years of doing Wharton Moneyball that we've ever talked about, I'll call it the trade-off between the quality or the potential of the MLB player and the time to market, if you'd like. You know, it's kind of like my home field of marketing. We think about this all the time. You know, I can launch the Rolls-Royce of products, but it'll take me a year more development time and other people will have competitive lead advantages, or I can launch a worse product in a shorter lead time. And of course, I can get a greater diffusion of that product. It's very similar. It's a very fascinating concept, Neil. I've never heard about someone thinking about, in some sense, strategically taking potentially a lower quality player, maybe even one that's older, that actually is more mature, that has a, a shorter time to market. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, when you're when you're dealing with such big, um, you know, rosters, and I'm talking about the major league roster, and then the minor league system, you know, you you have to take that all into account. And, um, you know, depending on what your situation is, both, you know, at the pro level, you know, at large, like, where are you in the whole gamut of MLB teams? And then, you know, what are your needs position? And what are those timelines? And, and you know, how quickly do you need to backfill those? So it, there's just a lot of moving parts. And, um, you know, I think it's, it just becomes really difficult unless you're, unless you're absolutely committed, right? I think one of the reasons why Tampa Bay is successful is because they are committed, right? They're, they're 100% committed to what their plan was. You know, I think the Nationals were kind of half in, half out. They were kind of half committed with money to some pitchers. Um, you know, then they, then they let Bryce Harper go and fans thought it was because they, so they could pay Anthony Rendon and then Anthony Rendon left so that they can pay Trey Turner and Juan Soto and then Trey Turner's traded, you know, now Juan Soto turns down a, a contract and, um, you know, there's talks about maybe he's on the trading box. So, um, you know, I, I think if you have one foot in one foot out, it, it never works. I think that you, you really do have to commit to a position and, um, you know, let that play out. Yeah, I think complicating that calculus is really that I think, you know, there's a lot of different strategies you can kind of have as far if, if you kind of think about a, a ma- both your major league and minor league system as a portfolio, do you want to kind of have assets basically at all levels where no matter what kind of time period you're taught look you're, you're forecasting you you're you're at least somewhat competitive or do you kind of want to go the route of sort of being like, well, we're going to try and line up you know, uh, you know, kind of almost like take our best shot at a particular time point where we can kind of have a collection of assets all hitting the major leagues at the same time. And that's obviously got to be an incredibly complicated type of thing to, you know, both evaluate as, as well as design, because it's also a function of what other teams are doing. Well, Shay, before Neil answers that, that I mean, you're on fire today, because that's another great point, which is you know, you can't be great all the time when you're a team like that. You know, Tampa Bay's done it for an extended period, but most other teams have to pick their spot. Like, we're going to pick 2026, and that's going to be 2026 to 28. Those are our three-year period. Then we might be bad for another five years, but we have to use all our assets to reach that peak period. Neil, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but I think that's a great point, Shane. Yeah, it's a great point. It's very similar to what we're we're talking about in the NFL too, right? With these quarterbacks on these rookie deals being low cost, high production assets. And um, you know, if you you look and you look at the teams that are able to build around a quarterback that's cost controlled, that isn't making um, you know as much as the as the top quarterbacks are, but is still producing like one, that's a a huge advantage. And um, you know, there is a window there, right? Because once the quarterbacks start to make those big cap hits it becomes very, it becomes more difficult to, to build around them. So, um, you know, same thing with like what the Orioles might be doing, right? I mean, you know, the, the Orioles are certainly 
um, looking towards that type of model where they're they're trying to to peak all at the same time at a certain time and um, you know make a run with it. And you know, look, it's not going to be easy in that division, um, but that's really their only path to success because they're not going to spend two hundred million dollars. So this is really the only way that they have to do it. But man, the margin of error has to be like really slim because you're talking about a lot of, move, you know, a lot of players, a lot of things going right at one time. I mean, it's, it's not easy. We're here talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil is a staff writer with the Washington Post, whose beat is our beat, which is sports analytics. Uh, Neil is a great follow. You can follow him on Twitter at, at, at N Greenberg. So Neil, I wanted to move on from baseball here, although we could talk about baseball the whole time. Um, why don't we talk about something that is happening right now? which is, and something I love talking about. Matter of fact, I'm the guy that's every week they say, all right, Eric wants to talk about tennis again. Well, I do. And the French Open is happening right now. Um, In my notes here, thanks to my producer, Matt Datz, um, it says that for some reason you like Stefano Tsitsipas might be a good bet in the French Open. Now, I do remember, as you do, Neil, I'm sure, last year Tsitsipas was up two sets to love on Novak Djokovic in the finals. Um, he could not bring the bacon home, as they say, but um, he made it all the way to the finals. What What is it about Sitsapas and his game that you think makes him a good bet for the French Open? And I should say, since I don't like to surprise our guest, Neil, I've been tracking the French Open today as we're speaking. Sitsapas is down a set and two breaks in the second set. But without that, we're not a... a why do you like <laughs> Sitsapas potentially in the French Open? Um, this was more about the draw than anything else. I mean, ah. I think that he's certainly a, a, a top player, but you look at uh, Djokovic, you look at uh, Nadal, and then, you know, the, uh, the young Alcaraz. Phenom, Alcaraz, yeah, Alcaraz. And, you know, they're, they're all in the same part of the bracket, right, from the quarters and the half. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that I can handicap that part of the, of the bracket, but I do think that, uh, you know, Sissipas has a really good chance of advancing at the, in the other part of the bracket. So this was more, you know, looking at where the value was and, you know, the, the, the top three of the four favorites are in one part. I mean, they all can't advance. So, well, that was going to be my question for you. I was going to ask you. So when you look at the betting odds now, maybe, maybe I'm oversimplifying this, Neil, but I'd love your thoughts. I'd love Shane's thought. I think you and I agree, Neil, and all of us sports guys that follow tennis agree I don't know who's going to win between Nadal, Alcaraz, and Djokovic. Let's assume they're all equal. Let's even just assume that, and it's probably right, modulo some modest error. (laughs) That means each of them has at best a one-third chance to make the finals, right? Maybe less, because I have to think about who. I think Djokovic and Nadal might play in the quarters, and then the winner plays Alcaraz, so it might even be harder. But how could any of them be like, plus 120, meaning like almost a favorite to win with those odds. How does that make sense with all three of them in the same part of the bracket? Well, that was my thought process as well. And, you know, the way I, I look at it is very similar to how I look at horse races. And that's, you know, that the 80-20 rule is, is probably going to apply. Meaning, you know, if we simulate this, this tournament, you know, a thousand times, I would say, probably 80% are going to be one from one of those top four favorites, right? We don't maybe not know who they are, but we probably know it's going to be one of them. So I would think at, at worst, you know, we should see them as plus 400. Right. Um, That's what happened. Right. So it just so happened that this pass was plus 450 and everyone was significantly like 250 or less. So, you know, that to me was value. 
And, you know, again, I mean, I'm not saying that I know for sure he's going to advance. I don't, you know, he, like you said, he was trailing before. I'm, I'm following that match as well. And um, he's gotten he, a break back in the second <laughs> set as we're, as we're uh, filming, if you'd like our radio yeah. show here. But, but here's the thing. And I think a lot of, you know, the sports betting content out there uh, doesn't do a good job with this is it, it's one thing to say, you know, Joe Smith is going to win this tournament, or I like team X to beat team Y there, there needs to be a number on it. There needs to be some sort of percentage. Cause that's the only way that you can figure out if the odds are in your favor or not. I mean, if Sissipas was, you know, plus 300, I still think his draw is great, but it's not worth wagering on because I don't think that the value is there. Right. So I, I, it's also how I, we measure loss in statistics. Like if Djokovic were a 98% favorite picking him to win, like I got that one, right? Yeah. All right. Congratulations. You got right. a 0.98 probability, right? It's how we measure in some sense expectation. It's how we measure in some sense, uh, you know, quality of prediction. Right. And now if you got, if you got Djokovic at plus 100, you know, a year ago in anticipation of him, you know, winning the tournament, then, then that's great value. Then you certainly deserve, you know, credit for, for making that pick. But like you said, I mean, you know, chalk wins because everyone's behind the chalk, right. Um, you know, and, and the public at large does a pretty good job of, of, you know, tiering players and um, teams. And, you know, we know that, you know, plus 100 bets win more often than plus 200 bets and, you know, so forth down the line. So, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just have to, to look at the field and, and um, you know, sometimes you can complicate it. But for me, it was just as easy as, like you said, who do I think has a legitimate chance of winning this? And, you know, between the four favorites, I mean, you know, they if we consider them all close to being equal, then anybody that's getting, you know, more than four plus four, four to one, I think is a is a decent value play. So before we leave tennis, uh, who do you like in the tournament? Um, I mean, I just, I mean, the, the display Alcaraz put on by beating Nadal and then Djokovic, and then I think it was Zverev in the finals was, I mean, that's a remarkable run. But I always comment to people, that's best of three. You know, I might have a chance to beat Nadal if you let me play one point, And, well, he's got to be injured. But regardless, um, you know, this is best of five. It's seven best of five matches but who do you like among the four favorites? If you had to pick right now, based on the play up until this year, where you know Nadal was having one of his greatest seasons ever until his slight injury, Djokovic was seemed to be playing poorly, but he just won the Italian Open. Alcaraz won has won more tournaments than anybody this year, as you said. Tsitsipas is sitting in a weak part of the draw. Uh, maybe there's others. Who who do you like? Well, I actually have three uh, future bets. So I have Tsitsipas. I have uh, Sinner. And um, I also have um, Rublev. Um, Should I assume I they're that... all on the opposite side <clears throat> of the draw as the, the let's call them the other three? Um, yeah, they're all in that bottom half. So right. um, I have uh, Sissipas at plus 450 at Rublev at plus 3,500. Um, Wynn actually had it at plus 4,000, 4, but they wouldn't let me bet it. And then Sinner, I also have at plus 3,500. Wynn had him at plus 5,000. I couldn't bet that either. So I'm um, actually, I've actually seen all of them play <laughs> quite a bit. And it's one of those things where if you told me Sinner plays, you know, Djokovic and beats him, I wouldn't be surprised. 
What, what surprised me about any of those three, and this is why they have long odds, is let's say them win seven straight matches. That's the part that always – is that can they do it for one match? Yes. Can they do it for three or four tough matches in a row? That's not obvious to me. Right, and, and I think at, um, you know, 30, 35 to 1, I'm, I'm not a bad taking, bet. That, taking that risk into account. I would actually say he probably has, um, I don't know, maybe a 5% chance to win – the open, I mean, the, the, the French open may be a little bit less, but you know, at, at 3,500, right. You're you basically know, getting two to one on your money. You're, you're getting, right. you're, you're getting two to so, one. So All I right, feel okay about it. So let's, we've talked about baseball. We've talked about tennis. Let's move on to another sport that just happened. Well, it's in the midst of it's the peak of the horse racing season. Um, you've written a lot. I know about the Derby and the Preakness. Um, first, can you talk to us about your understanding? Cause we're not experts about what I'll call horse racing analytics. And is there any special sauce to horse racing or could any stat like Shane and I are statisticians, could we just all of a sudden do horse racing analytics? What is horse racing analytics and what has struck you about the Derby and the Preakness this year? Yeah, actually uh, horse racing analytics was probably my first foray into, I actually found Andy Beyer who started the uh, buyer speed rating yep. before I found Bill James. So, um, and I grew up very close to Belmont Park in Queens, New York. So I, I'm, I, I'm very familiar with horse racing and, um, it's, it's a great race to look at analytically. Um, the, the downside is data. It is very difficult to get data. The people that have the data do not want you to have it. What data um, would you, what data, let me ask you, I mean, when I say like, I can look at a horse, like, um. Rich was it Rich Strike was the name of the horse yes. that won the Derby. I, I can look at its history about what uh, races it's ran and what its times have been. What ideally, what type of data are you referring to that you can, the data you kind of wish you had but can't have? So I, I you want to know who the horse has run against. I think the class of the horse is very, very important. Um, who you're racing against. Um, tells you how good the horse is because there's so many different types of races now just to get fields, to get enough field, to get enough horses in the field to run the race that it's not like it was, you know, a decade ago where a 10,000 claimer was a 10,000 claimer at Belmont was similar to the one at Aqueduct and Gulfstream. Now they have, it's more like, you know, claiming races, optional claiming races, et cetera. So I would say, being able to do almost like a, a simple rating system for the horses um, would be ideal. Now that's tricky because they, they run at different, at different distances. Um, and that's where the speed figures kind of come in to try to help normalize that. But for me in particular, um, you know, you, you need to be able to forecast improvement with the horse. Like that's the most important thing. It really doesn't matter so much how the horses run in the past. It's what will it do in this race. And, um, you know, I think looking at the speed, looking at how quickly they are to the half mile marker, you know, being able to, to regress something like that, or at least look at some patterns, um, analytically, um, would certainly be helpful, but to get that data is very difficult. There was somebody that actually created a program that took the PDFs from Equibase and was able to distill that into, uh, into a MySQL format. Um, and they were shut down within three days. And, um, so it makes it, it's very difficult to, to get data for, for horse racing. Um, but it's, uh, it's a neat logic puzzle for me. Um, I think the cheating is, is, is pretty widespread. So it makes it a little bit difficult to, 
to, to take it very seriously. Um, but for the big races, I, I'm certainly a part of, and, um, you know, I, I, I try to look for, for value plays in that too. I didn't have rich strike. Um, and I don't think many people did cause it was 80 to one. Um, but even that, like you look at, at that race and you look at the, the, one of the best rides I've ever seen from a jockey in that race through traffic. I mean, truly one of the best yep. ridden, ridden horse races ever that I can remember. Um, you know, a lot has to go right there. And, um, you know, we're going to see this horse come back again at the Belmont stakes in a couple of weeks, much smaller field, maybe less than half the field. Um, but the Belmont at one and a half miles is very different than the Kentucky Derby at one and a quarter miles. It takes a different type of horse, a different type of game plan. Um, so, uh, we'll have to wait and see, but I think for me, because there's so many different elements, uh, distance track surface, surface conditions, jockey, um, you know, the race that it's entered in the class of its opponents, like, you know, you, so you believe you really that have... all of those factors are needed. If one was going to run, whether it's a, a regression, machine learning model, yeah. matter boosted, all of those are going to be significant predictors. If one had a data set that could assess that. Yeah. But here's the thing though, like the, the weight that you'd put on each one for like a stakes race is completely different than it would be for a maiden race or a claiming race or an well, allowance that makes race. It, so, yeah, that makes <clears throat> it really difficult then. Right. So you, it. so yeah, so you almost like, like a, 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 um, a dirt sprint graded stakes is different from a, a turf sprint graded stakes is different from a dirt route graded stakes. So you would need, you know, almost three different models um, to, to handicap them effectively. And even then, like, you know, there's still so much art to it. Like I, one of the things that I looked for um, that was introduced to me by a handicapper named Mark Framer was the pattern match, which is, you know, sometimes we'll see like these horses go back to a situation that they've won before after like losing a bunch of times, same track, same distance, same jockey, um, you know, and, and they end up going off at good prices. And, um, you know, so, so that's not something that like necessarily artificial intelligence or machine learning or even, you know, regression is going to pick up. There's, there's still very much an art to it. it it's, it's not all science, unfortunately. So, Neil, in the last few minutes, and in homage to my Canadian colleague here, Shane Jensen, I have to ask the NHL. And I know you've written some stuff about all-time high scoring this season and why you thought it would go down in the playoffs. So, A, I'd like you to tell our listeners here on Wharton Money all about your work. But also, did it surprise you at all that the highest scoring team in the NHL, the team that had one of the historical seasons, the Florida Panthers, were swept aside by the Tampa Bay Lightning four to nothing. I think they scored three goals total in four games. And Vasilevsky has like a 980 save percentage. So could you talk to us about why you thought that scoring would go down in the playoffs? And were you surprised at all by the Panthers being swept out? So I thought scoring would go down because <clears throat> you're taking away all the bad goalies in the playoffs, right? I mean, the, the bad teams aren't going to be a part of the playoffs. So I thought, for sure, and history has certainly backed this up, that scoring declines in the playoffs by as much as 7% because there's just better teams. There's, there's just better defensive teams. They play a little bit tighter. The goaltenders are better. Um, now, the Battle of Alberta is kind of putting that on its, on its ear a little bit, 
but um well that hasn't exactly been a <clears throat> goaltending showcase certainly. right that's what i'm saying so Shane, maybe um, you should just our listeners on Wharton Moneyball know this. Maybe you should just let Neil know where you're from. Of course, that would yeah, I'm, I'm I grew up in Calgary, so I I, okay, I, so- I grew up during the classic Battle of Alberta back in the '80s, '90s, which was also not a goaltending showcase. Right. So you speak fluent hockey, right? So you understand yes. what I'm saying in terms of, you know, where where this is going, and you know, I I don't think I expected a a 15 goal game, and then. Um, you know, an eight goal game and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, as far as the Florida Panthers, I mean, no, I'm not surprised. I'm, I work in the D.C. area where the Washington Capitals were quite frequently the best scoring team in the league, quite frequently the President's Trophy team in the league and quite frequently a, a first round bounce. And, um, you know, hockey is is very fluky. I mean, you know, you look at the, the talent to, to skill ratio, I mean, the skill to luck ratio in hockey um, I would, I would guess it's probably somewhere like 60% luck, 40% skill, maybe even 70, 75% luck. And, you know, a lot of people argue with me about that, but you look at, um, you know, you look at how fluky goaltending is from, from night to night, let alone year to year, best goaltender one year can oftentimes become an average goaltender the next year. You look at the players that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, their, their resume is like two goals, five goals, 25 goals. Um, because they got real lucky on shots. And then the next season, everyone's like, oh, he's going to be a 40-goal scorer. And he ends up scoring five again. Um, you know, you, there's so many fluky bounces and, um, you know, those sort of things. So, you know, it, it's it's hard. It's one of the reasons why I don't really bet on hockey. Because I, even if I think I have a good read on the players and I think I have a good read on the team strength overall and, and the goalies, I mean, there's still a lot of stuff that that happens that that I have no control more so than I would, you know, wagering on a baseball game. Maybe just so, one, la- yeah. Maybe just one last <clears throat> question, Neil, about hockey, and then we'll have to wrap up here. Um, if the Lightning were to win the title this year, this would give them three in a row. Um, yeah. I'd love your thoughts. I'd love also Shane's thoughts. Where, from a historical perspective, then, do they come in if they win three in a row? Neil, why don't I start with you, and then I'd love Shane's thoughts as well. I mean, it's a dynasty for sure. Um, you know, we're talking about Edmonton Oilers, New York Islanders as being, you know, the other teams in that type of class. And, um, you know, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay has always had like a solid team. They've always been very well coached. And, you know, even though Steven Stamkos kind of took a step back, um, you know, they, they, you know, Kucherov hasn't, hasn't been, um, wasn't available during the regular season. Um, you know, he's had some injury concerns, but then you have the goaltending that comes together. Kucherov is, you know, just absolutely lighting it up in the playoffs. They have Victor Hedman, a perennial, you know, Norris Trophy candidate. I mean, I think they're, they're arguably, you know, they're, they're right up there. I mean, it's very difficult in the salary cup era to win, you know, back to back cups, but let alone, you know, being able to win three, what could be three in a row. Shane, where do you, yeah, put I, the, I, where do you put this team? I agree with that. I mean, the only other team in the sort of salary cap era that kind of pops in my mind is perhaps like the Blackhawks. They won three Stanley Cups, but it was kind of alternating years. Again, the kind of consistency to win three in a row. And also, I mean, I was just kind of looking over Tampa Bay's sort of record recently. They've actually, this is the sixth time in eight seasons they've essentially been to the final four, to the conference finals. 
Um, and one of those other times, the one of one of those times where they missed in the last eight seasons, they were the, the best team in hockey. That historically, you know, one of the historically great seasons of all time, and just happened to flame out in the first round. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I th- certainly think, um, you know, if if they win it all this year, or they win it all in the next couple of years, that we'll be talking about them as a dynasty. Probably not on the scale of Edmonton, the Oilers back in the day, or the Islanders back in the day. But you know, again, hockey was very different. They certainly are, I think they will be the kind of the premier dynasty of the salary cap era. Yeah. And you bring up a good point about Chicago because Chicago actually had a rebuild, right? They took a mm-hmm. major step back, yeah. retooled, and then was right back at it again, like you said, in alternating years. So, um, you know, in the salary cap era, that always seemed to me like the way that you had to do it almost, but um, you know, Tampa Bay is kind of flicking that off a little bit and um, they're just uh, you know, they're, they're tough, man. I mean, they're tough to play against. And, um, you know, it's rare that we see like the regular season hockey play so well in the playoffs, but they're just, um, they're a powerhouse. Well, Neil, yeah, no, um, I mean, part of it is, I think, uh, credit to their goaltender. Vasilevsky, I think, is, is, is an amazing goaltender. Amazing. And kind of pers- uh, return to one of your main points from before, I think they've also gotten a lot. You just have to have luck on your side for some right. run like this. Well, Neil, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. It's a rare guest that we talk to about baseball, tennis, horse racing, and hockey. So we'd like to thank you. Uh, Neil's a staff writer with the Washington Post. You can read his material there. And, of course, he's a great follow on Twitter at N. Greenberg. Neil, thank you for joining Shane and me here on Morton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Thank you. So this has been two hours of Sports Talk Radio, Sports Statistics and Business here on Morton Moneyball, Sirius XM, powered by the Wharton School. I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz. I'd like to thank our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, who makes all of this possible. On behalf of myself, my colleague, Shane Jensen, uh, we're always, always joined either also by Cade Massey and Adi Weiner. For the four of us, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.